time that we turn our attention to what we've really come to do, and that's to study His Word. Pick up this morning in the 23rd chapter of Luke's Gospel, the 26th verse. As we draw near to that time when we'll celebrate the season of Easter. And so this morning, part one of a title, a study here that I've entitled, The Tree. Seems like an odd name. But it really isn't an odd name. Because it actually is the name that comes from the Old Testament. And in fact, this morning, in spite of the lack of evidence and in spite of the complete innocence of our Savior, both the religious rulers, the ruling Romans, had come to the same judgment about Jesus. That judgment was death. The cross was coming. It is, in fact, the cross of Christ that is a dividing line. It's the watershed. It is the place where all in the difference is made between every other belief system on the planet Earth and biblical Christianity. For indeed, it is only biblical Christianity that teaches that there is one way and one truth and one life, only one name under heaven whereby men may be saved. Because in fact it was God incarnate in human flesh that paid for the price of our sin on Calvary's cross. Without the cross, there is no difference between biblical Christianity and all of the other religions of the world. If God did not himself die for us in our place, then we are still dead in our trespasses and sins. And so today, part one of the tree. Let's pray. Father, this morning a somber message. Lord, one that can't be avoided at this time of year as we look to that sacrifice that was made for us. And Lord, I believe there are some this morning that are here in this place, that maybe even mockingly so, don't care. Lord, what is the tree? Who cares? And I pray this morning by the truth of your word, by the power of your spirit, that you would convict and convince, remind us, Lord, of that great sacrifice that was made for us, for all who will believe. Lord, to those of us who have named your name, that rugged cross represents eternal life. Without it, we would be lost. And so, God, we give you this time. We ask that you would speak to us through the power of your word. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. If you would turn to your Bibles and flip all the way over to the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, and to Deuteronomy, the book that Moses authored as he would explain really how to live out the Ten Commandments given in the book of Exodus, the book of Deuteronomy kind of expands on those things. 
And it says there in Deuteronomy chapter 21 and in verse 22, If a man has committed a sin deserving of death, and he is put to death, and you shall hang him on a tree, his body shall not remain overnight on the tree, but you shall surely bury him that day, so that you do not defile the land which the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance. For he who is hanged is accursed of God. It is from that passage that we truly can understand exactly what happened to Jesus. Because from a Jewish perspective, the Sanhedrin, Annas, Caiaphas, and those who shouted, Give us Barabbas! believed that what they had done is passed along a death sentence and along with it a curse upon Jesus. That surely he would be hanged on the tree, crucified. And that in that he would be not just cursed in this life, but in the next. And yet not only was that not the case, he would in fact break the curse because he would die in our place and then be raised again on the third day. And so this passage that we find ourselves coming to is really an example of exactly what the Lord spoke to us at the end of the book of Genesis in chapter 50. And it was in the life of Joseph there that the Lord spoke of his life. And you all remember the story of Joseph. He too was innocent, not as innocent as Jesus. But he had done nothing to be sold into slavery by his family. He had been placed in a place of, in essence, prison because of a wrongdoing against him. And in verse 19 of Genesis 50, it says this, But Joseph said to them, Do not be afraid. For I am in the place of God. Another way to translate that is, I am exactly where God wants me. I am exactly where God wants me. You see, but as for you, you meant evil against me. But God meant it for good. In order to bring about, as it is this day, to save many people alive. And now therefore do not be afraid, for I will provide for you and your little ones. And he comforted them and spoke kindly to the very people who had sent him to Egypt as a slave in the first place. A wonderful picture of exactly what happened to Jesus. It looked desperate. It looked horrible. It looked as though everything that could possibly go wrong was going wrong. From a human perspective, Annas, Caiaphas, the Romans, all of them had prevailed in the life of Jesus. And in yet, 
as we look at this passage, that's not at all what happened. It was, in fact, the foreordained plan of God that allowed Jesus' life to culminate at the cross. And so we pick up now in verse 26. And the tree, part one. And now as they led him away, they laid hold of a certain man, Simon the Cyrenian, whom was coming from the country. And on him they laid the cross that he might bear it after Jesus. And I would remind you this is a doctor that's writing these words. And just like they are today, they usually spare the details. They just simply say, you're going to die. You've got this, you've got that, do this, do that, take two of these, call me in the morning. You would expect that out of someone that is in that place. And that is exactly what we find of Dr. Luke as he writes this account. And a great multitude of people followed him, and women who also mourned and lamented him. But Jesus, turning to them, said, and that turning to them is directly associated with specifically the women who are following him. And in fact, it seems to indicate that the crowd is largely populated with women. And in fact, it appears that they are the ones who care the most at this point in time. We don't find the disciples standing nearby. We find the ladies who cared for the Lord Jesus. Turning to them, he said this, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me. But weep for yourselves and for your children. For indeed the days are coming in which they will say, Blessed are the barren, wombs that never bore, breasts that never nursed. And then they will begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us, to the hills, Cover us. For if they do these things in the green wood, what will be done in the dry? And there also were two others, criminals, led with him to be put to death. And when they had come to the place called Calvary, Golgotha, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on the right hand and the other on the left. A very simple and yet very impactful passage. Now again, I remind you that the Gospels are different for a reason. It is again the proof, the internal evidence, that they were not a coalition of authors that got together and said, hey, write this. They wrote from their own life experience. They wrote from their own position in the drama that was unfolding before them. They wrote as they saw the events, as they understood them. And so there are differences. And in the differences of this passage, we find it very sterile. Exactly as you would expect from a doctor. Just the details. It doesn't lack what John put in his 
but it does not have the details that John put in his account. They're the same story. First thing that we see is a glimpse of this foreign conscript, this person who now is going to be forced to carry the cross of Christ. Notice verse 26, And as they led him away, they laid hold of this man Simon, a Cyrenian, coming out of the country. And they laid the cross on him. You see, from the Romans' perspective, they could actually understand there was no way in the world that Jesus Christ was going to carry his own cross. He had been beaten nearly to death. His body was flayed. His sinews, his muscle, his tissues ripped to shreds. He was scarcely alive at this point. So bad was the beating that the prophet Isaiah would write of the coming Messiah that he would not be distinguishable as a human being. And Jesus is forced to carry his cross. There's all kinds of debate about what kind of cross it was. And frankly, it does not matter. Whether it was the Roman Tau, Tau is Latin for T. And that T, of course, would look like our T, with the crossbar at the top, perhaps, maybe even likely. It could have been the small Tau. It could have been a cross like we see most often in Christendom, with the crossbar down from the top. But where Jesus was headed was to a place of execution where people died every single day. The Romans were professionals at this. They reused the upright and they reused the crossbar. They were set up to murder, to kill, to maim. And so whether Jesus was carrying an entire cross sufficient in its girth to hold his weight or whether he was carrying the crossbar someplace between 300 and probably 125 pounds were on the back of Jesus across his shoulders. A nearly dead man. And so the Romans, not taking pity, but rather looking at Jesus saying, he's not going to make it, he's going to mess up the schedule. We got other people to put to death this week. We need to make sure this happens. This is not compassion on the part of the Romans. These are professional killers looking to do their job. And so they grab Simon the Cyrenian. Jesus was trying to bear his cross. The Gospels remind us that he staggered under the weight that he fell. I would remind you he was completely unable to protect himself. His hands were likely tied to the crossbar. They did so so that they could keep the person and the crossbar together. Now remember that he'd already had a sleepless night in agony. He had been beaten mercilessly. He had been beaten about his head and his face with a rod. He'd had a crown of thorns pressed upon him. 
Jesus was scarcely alive. On top of that, these proceedings began in the night. It's now daylight. His eyes swollen nearly shut, blood dripping down from that crown of thorns. He probably can't even see where he's going. And down he went. And so they spied what would be normal at that day, because where Golgotha is is at the north side of the city of Jerusalem. So on the main Roman road leading out of town on that edge, and it was there that the Romans always did their dirty work, because it was there that the people passing by would see the crucifixions and come to the conclusion in their own heart and mind, I'm not messing with Rome. It was a tremendous deterrent to dissension. Now I guarantee you Simon was not exactly up to this task. He didn't want to do it either. What would people think? Would they confuse him with the criminal? He did not know Jesus. But according to the book of Acts in Acts chapter 13, one day... The same Simon, Simon the Cyrenian, Simon called Niger, the black man, would come to Christ and he'd be a leader in the early church. God indeed works all things together for the good for those who love him and are those who are the called according to his purpose. Everything, every single cross you will ever bear works together for the good. We don't know that when you're going through it. We don't see how that happens. We don't know why kids get cancer. We don't know why the Lord allows in our lives those things that are a cross. But we know that He uses crosses. The next thing we see is a crying crowd. And I want to highlight the wonderful women in this passage. They're not listed by name, but we know likely amongst them are Elizabeth and Mary and Martha and her sister Mary and Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Suzanne. And there were all kinds of ladies in Jesus' life. And I want to just draw your attention to one central thing. There is not a single record ever in the entire Bible of Jesus being opposed by a woman. Sometimes we think that the centrality of the Gospels is nearly misogynistic, man-centered, but it really isn't. Because it was, in fact, Jesus who set women free. Because at that time, they weren't even allowed to speak in public without their husband present. They actually didn't have rights apart from men. And yet, Luke draws attention here to these wonderful women who were following close enough that Jesus could talk to them. We're not told about any men in the crowd. And in fact, we know the disciples all fled. 
They ran away. I believe that the Lord has given both men and women unique, wonderful places from which, in a general sense, we each operate. Very often men are a little more direct, sometimes too much so. Very often men are a little more, uh, shall we say, forceful, and sometimes too much so. But it is very often you ladies who bring the proper level of compassion to the picture. I know it is so in my marriage to my lovely bride. Without her compassion, I, I would be a mess. It is the compassion of these women. They will be the first ones to the tomb, by the way. It will be the ladies. Guys, I want to challenge you to grow in your compassion. Allow the Lord to tenderize your heart a little bit. And maybe think on things from a little different perspective than we are normally framed to do in the way that God has created us. Because it absolutely takes both places for us to live the lives that God's really designed for us. There is in the midst of this a word about some coming calamity, and it's really a sub-point, if you will, because it's speaking about a future event as the Lord speaks. And you'll notice, but Jesus turning in verse 28 said to them, Daughters of Jerusalem, And I believe that there would be a very near fulfillment of this passage and the greater fulfillment is coming yet still. And notice what he says, do not weep for me. This is what Jesus came to do. And he's not telling them to lose their compassion. He's saying, look, I came here to do this, but what you're going to go through, you haven't got a clue. Because this day was in my father's house millennia ago. We knew this was coming. But for you, there's a time coming that you don't know yet. And so he says to them, Weep for yourselves, for your children, for indeed the days are coming when they will say, Blessed are the barren, the wombs that never bore, the breast which never nursed. And they will begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us, to the hills, cover us. And notice, please, would you, the singular sentence that gives us a picture rather odd in our day and time. But I think it's very specifically making sure we understand what Jesus is getting at here. He said, for if they do these things in the greenwood, if they do these things in the age of grace when it's easy for us to be Christians when it's easy for us to live out our lives according to the gospel, when there's very little chance that you're going to be persecuted, how much tougher, he says, will it be when things dry up in the age of grace, when the wood becomes dry. And so because of that sentence, I believe there was a near-term fulfillment. And in fact, it would come in 70 A.D. with the siege of Jerusalem. And during that siege, the Roman emperor uh, would send Flavius Titus, who would later become emperor himself, 
to besiege Jerusalem and to capture it, and it would be he who would destroy the temple that at this time was sitting on the Temple Mount. It would be he who would sack and burn Jerusalem. It would be he who would be responsible for the crucifixion of several hundred thousand people, Jews. Ladies, it would be better if you weren't born. Be better you never had children. Because you just caved in to Roman law, you're going to see what the Romans really intend. Isn't it strange how we believe that the world has so much to offer and then we find out that there is a way that seems right unto man, but the end thereof is death? You see, that's the truth of it. We think caving into the Romans, or we think caving into political correctness, or we think caving into the current mores of the day. We think giving in is going to bring us some type of blessing, and yet it brings to us a curse. And if you can't see that, you're not paying very close attention to what's going on in our world. Because Christians are in this place right now. This is where we are. It's not looking good for those of us who really believe that the Bible is actually God's word and meant to be taken literally. And so he says, look, you're going to go through unbelievable difficulty. And of course, the ultimate fulfillment of these things will be one day when the Antichrist reveals himself. In those last three and a half years of the tribulation, join us on Wednesday nights as we study the book of Revelation. You'll get the whole picture. It's not going to be good for the nation Israel. It wasn't good then. It will be infinitely worse when that day comes. And I do mean infinitely worse when that day comes. Prime Minister Netanyahu is in Washington, D.C. this very moment. He's going to meet with our Congress tomorrow. Forced to make a decision as to what the Israeli people will do to keep Iran from possessing a nuclear weapon. Some people say, well, what does it matter? There are so many now. What matters is is you have a regime who's promised to annihilate Israel. It is their goal. It is their aim. And you have a book called your Bible that says in the last days that that particular nation along with Russia will rise up together and besiege Israel. It's very important. How long will the age of grace last? I don't know. But I don't think much longer. Next, the story turns to these friendless convicts. You have to sometimes wonder, were these guys actually friends of perhaps Barabbas? We're not actually told with specificity. But I can tell you this, it's almost a certain thing that they at least knew him that they had an understanding of what had happened. Perhaps they were incarcerated in the same cell. We don't know. But I know this. They knew Jesus was innocent, and they were guilty. And yet, they found themselves, just as Isaiah 53.12 says, Jesus, the Messiah, the King of Kings, would be numbered with the transgressors. He would be one of three that day. Counted as one of the ones who deserved to die. 
I wonder what they were thinking. Because they knew what was coming. They had not received the beating that Jesus had received. They were the real criminals. I wonder what they thought as they gazed upon Jesus when he said, Father, forgive them. Friendless and forsaken. And then came that fearful crime. And that's what it was. It was a crime. It was the grossest miscarriage of justice ever perpetrated on a single human being ever in the course of human history. Ever. The most innocent man ever to walk the face of the earth received the most heinous penalty ever dished out to anyone ever on the face of the earth. We whine and complain about the drug cocktails used in lethal injection. And I'm not trying to be discompassionate here towards any suffering. But because someone's chest is heaving while they're unconscious is a little different than someone's skin being ripped off their body while they're completely conscious. Someone's entrails being exposed while they're trying to carry a cross falling on the ground and having those sores covered in dirt and rocks and then being thrown on the ground and having iron spikes driven through their hands and then have their legs brought up in the shape of a V, lean to the side and then central nail right smack through the perineal nerve in the feet. through the ulnar nerves of the wrist, the hands. And by the way, I believe that Jesus' hands absolutely were nailed to the cross because Isaiah said so in Isaiah 49. It says, see, I have inscribed you on the palms of my hands. There's no palms on your wrists. Maybe he was tied, I don't know. I know he was the Son of God. The place place of the skull. Can you imagine Father God looking at his son at the place of the skull and Jesus crying out, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, my God, my God, where are you? And God, the Father, looking down on Jesus, the Son. Can you imagine the restraint with which God, the Father, operated that day? I would have destroyed the entire world and everyone on it. I would have. You would have too, more than likely. What restraint the Father showed to allow His only begotten Son to be brutally murdered with common criminals. It wasn't a lethal injection. It wasn't an electric chair. It wasn't hanging. It wasn't a clean shot from a rifle. His son was stripped of his flesh. In 1986, the Journal of American Medical Association actually did an article on the crucifixion of Christ and came to the conclusion that almost 100% of the time, people would not have survived just the scourging. They said the chances of someone actually surviving what Jesus had happened to him before he ever got to the cross is almost zero. 
and I'm being in, intentionally graphic because you need to realize what Jesus did for you. He was God. He could have called forth a legion of angels and said, Enough. Enough. Father God could have destroyed every last sinner on planet earth because of what they did to his son. How great is the Father's love for us. How great is the love of Christ for us. Notice the simple four words. There they crucified him. That's it. That's it. No crueler death. Yes, they attempted to give him gall mixed with myrrh, a mild anesthetic. But by then, I'm sure the flies had already come upon his wounds. It was very common for the scavenger birds or vultures, very large ones that inhabit Israel even today. Very common for those completely helpless people to be literally picked apart by wild animals. No wonder the 22nd Psalm says what it says. Jesus did that for you. He did that for me. I don't care what shape his cross was. I know that by his death I've been set free. And he who the Son has set free is free indeed. That's what I know. That's what I know. He was no doubt taunted. His knees were placed in a position of flexion. In other words, his muscles and the sinews, the joints, the marrow, the tendons were all put in, in a place to where they were already stressed, being bent. I want you to try something when you go home. Try standing for 15 minutes with your knees bent in a 30-degree position. Just try standing and see if you can do it. I can pretty much guarantee you there's very few people in this room who could actually accomplish that feat. Then imagine you have almost no skin left on your body. Imagine the blood loss. Imagine that your fluids in your body are draining out on the ground and not just your blood. A lymphatic fluid. Fluids building up on your heart, exactly as would happen to someone who has had this kind of abuse. The crucial effect, ultimately, of crucifixion was normally that the victim suffocated. Because you couldn't straighten yourself up. There was no possible way to stand up and release the tension upon your chest. And so as the Roman historian Josephus would record, it was very often to to hasten that so they could get to the next guy. That's why the spear came out. And normally, if they had been there more than a few hours, they would simply break their legs so they could no longer stretch up and breathe. 
But when they got to Jesus, the Gospels record that he was already gone. It's because he gave his life a ransom for many. It wasn't taken from him. He wasn't murdered. He gave up his life. Yes, it was the Romans. Yes, it was the Jews. Yes, it was you. Yes, it was me. But he did it willingly. That's why the word that we use fairly regularly in our English language, excruciating, comes from two Latin words. It means out of the cross. Excruciatus. That which comes forth from the cross is how we now describe the very worst that mankind can do. Why does all this matter? Because it's from that cross that you and I have been made free. You see, that curse that should have been on all of us was taken upon Jesus and he defeated it. There are two things that all of mankind has a problem with. One of them is sin. Amen? If you don't struggle with sin, I'd like to meet you after church and you can tell me how it is that you do that. Because I haven't met a single person that's ever walked the face of this earth that doesn't struggle with sin. And the second thing is the consequence of sin, which is death. I also have yet to meet anyone who's lived on this earth who ultimately does not die. Now, we don't know everybody in history, but I can tell you this. It's called history because they're D-E-A-D, dead. Amen? One day, every last one of you, if you live long enough, you're going to live long enough to die. Amen? I don't care whether you live to be 45, sudden heart attack, or 105, and you've had too much bacon. doesn't matter. You're still going to be D-E-A-D, dead. The penalty of sin is death. Jesus took the penalty of your sin, and then he defeated death by being raised from the grave. He took care of mankind's problem at the cross. That's what he did. That's why he did it. It's what he came for. That's how marvelous our Savior is. Amen. Have you ever wondered why Colossians, the first chapter of the book of Colossians, is so descriptive of the Lord Jesus? It says there in verse 19. You see, what was the watermark? Think of this. What was the watermark of man's guilt? The cross of Christ. Amen. I don't know how you how you can express someone being guilty more than what was done to Jesus. If ever there were guilty people on the face of the earth, it was the people involved in that day in Jesus' life who said, this man is completely innocent, but let's kill him anyway. And oh, by the way, let's kill him in as brutal a way as we possibly can. To me, that is the watermark. That is the high watermark. We look at our reservoirs around California. The high watermark is that place where the water used to be, but it's no longer there. That's as far up as it can go. 
that the massive amount of man's guilt was at the cross of Christ. It's never been any more so than at the cross. And yet it would also become the high water mark of God's grace. Because it was at the cross that God dealt with me and you. And it says in verse 19 of the book of Colossians, this tiny letter to this church in Colossae, Greece. For it, have you ever read this and just gone, it can't be. For it pleased the Father that in him all the fullness should dwell, and by him to reconcile all things to himself, by him whether things on the earth or things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of his cross. And you, who were once alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet he has now reconciled. For in the body of his flesh through death, to present you holy, blameless, and above reproach in God's sight. It's why the cross, it's why the tree, it's what it was for. The worship team's going to come back up. And as they do, you're here today and you do not know Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior. I want to make sure you understand one thing before you leave here. There is no other name under heaven whereby men may be saved. There's no other way. Jesus himself said, if you believe in me, you have eternal life. Scripture says that to believe on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ is to be saved. It also says that there is no other way. It was the tree that has brought us life. If you need to pray, we're going to have some pastors after service up front. No man sees heaven without Jesus. No woman sees heaven without Jesus. Do not leave this place today without Jesus. I beg you, because your eternal life depends on it. Would you pray with me? Father, we ask you right now by your Spirit, if there's anyone here present this day that has never confessed that you, Jesus Christ, alone are the way and the truth and the life and that no one comes to the Father but through you. God, that your grace would just sweep into their hearts at this very moment, convince them of the truth of the gospel message. I'd give them that courage to simply come forward after service and pray to receive you. God, for the rest of us who know you, the rest of us who love you, the rest of us who want to serve you, We simply say thank you, Jesus, for dying in our place, taking those stripes so that we would never have to. It's in your blessed name we pray these things and all God's people said. Amen.